0: Good singing. Good morning, church. <clears throat> Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Amos? It's near the end of the Old Testament or page 769 in the Bibles provided for you in the pew. If you're newer with us, we've been studying through these small books in the end of the Old Testament called minor just because of their size and uh, written somewhere. 800 or so years before the birth of Christ calling the the uh, nations or the tribes of the northern part of Israel called Israel or the southern part of Israel called Judah calling them respectively to return to the Lord and uh, and the the key symptom of their wandering their rebelling against the Lord has to do With the way they are not serving their neighbor. And the ways that uh, Trey was reminding us of in this, and we're reminded of in this stewardship season. They have forgotten that they are redeemed. We notice that in chapter 2, verse 10 of the book of Amos. That uh, he says, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten that I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you for 40 days in the wilderness? You have obviously forgotten my redemption. My, my work of redemption in the Old Testament that prefigures the redemption of Christ at the cross, you've forgotten that. It's obvious that you had, or you would not have forgotten those in need around you, especially the poor. Now, in chapters 7 to 9, we come really to the climax of this little book. Uh, the climax of the book, because in it, Amos relates five Visions. Visions he's been given by God or dreams or insights uh, into the situation of the Israelites in the north to whom he's been sent. And uh, two of these visions are uh, in, we'll read them today in chapter 7. Two of them have to do with visions that God gave to Amos about what was going to come. The kind of judgment that was going to come on Israel For their complacency, for their ignoring the poor, for their ignoring those in need around them. He said, I'm going to judge them. And Amos says, seeing what was coming, he stands up, he intercedes for them and says, God, you can't do that. Don't wipe them out. Have mercy on them. And just like when Moses did the same for the Israelites in uh, Exodus, God had mercy and relented. God had compassion on them. He raised up Amos to be an intercessor, a mediator, again, in anticipation of the coming work of Christ, and God spared them. And then the other three visions are in verse uh, chapters, various places in seven to nine. We'll point them out as we go along over the next two weeks. But in those visions, he warns, he warns Amos to pass it along to Israel if they do not repent, I'm going to spare them this time because of your intercession. But I want you to go and warn them. I want you to tell them what they've been spared of. And if they do not repent, then I'm going to send them away into exile. I'm going to discipline them, which is indeed what happened. And, and what was he calling them to repent of? We've noticed this already, but especially in chapters seven to nine, he says, I want you to turn your hearts back to me because you are ignoring me. It's, it's evident by the way you work. It's evident by the way you worship. It's evident by the way you recreate. And the evidence that that worship, work and play are not not motivated by my grace and mercy is because they don't change you one whit in regard to your compassion for those in need. When you worship me, when you're recreating with me in view, when you are working with me in view, then you imitate me in all of those areas by serving those around you with the same mercy you've been visited with. So we're going to divide this big topic of worship at work uh, 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 worship at work and play and the church. We're going to divide it in two parts. Today I'm just going to focus on, on work as... Amos, the mouthpiece of God, calls the people of God to rethink the way they work after the image of God. We begin reading in chapter 7, verse 1, and a portion into chapter 8. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts. When the latter growth was just beginning to sprout, and behold, it was latter, the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, Oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. That's the first vision. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, "O oh, Lord, God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I'll never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah the priest this is not a vision. This is, a real, this is an encounter between Amos and Amaziah, the priest of the north. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from the land. Amaziah said to Amos, O oh, seer, go flee away to the land of Judah, eat bread there, prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel for it is the king's sanctuary and it's a temple of his kingdom. Amos answered and said to him, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son. I was a herdsman a dresser, sycamore figs, but the Lord took me from following the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people, Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord to you, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword and your land shall be divided up with a measuring land line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land. And Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people, Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. So many dead bodies, they're thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this. You who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end saying, when will the new moon be over that we shall sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances that we may buy the poor for silver. the Needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff for wheat. The Lord is sworn by the pride of Jacob. Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Open our eyes, O Lord. Open our eyes, open our minds, open our thoughts. That we might see the love of God in Christ Jesus. His infinite mercy and his death, burial, resurrection is coming again. And may we see it so clearly and so constantly that we will not do anything ever the same, even our work. In Jesus' name we pray it and God's people send together. Amen. I became a pastor when I was in my early 20s before I had graduated from seminary. And because I was a pastor, people came to me asking me to do things that pastors are supposed to do, but I had no earthly idea how to do, like funerals. I wasn't even authorized in our church government at the time. I wasn't authorized to do a funeral on my own, so I reached out to one of my seminary professors who was a member of our congregation, and I said, would you please help me do a funeral I thought he was uh, he was uh, so old he had to have done everything in the world and uh, including and uh, doing funerals of course and uh, so he agreed graciously to help me and we walked through the the steps of planning the funeral and, and then conducting the funeral. And he preached the message and I shadowed him and walked with him along the way. And then, then we got in the car with his wife, who she did everything with him as well. And we were heading to the graveside and he said, wow, that was a great experience. I've never done a funeral before. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. The Lord helped me was in the back of the seat where his rear view mirror couldn't see me. I was rolling my eyes and wringing my hands because we were going to the graveside. What are we going to do there? He's never done that either. But he and his wife spoke in a way. They'd both been my professors. And they were very dear people to me. Tremendous impact on my life. And they walked in the presence of the Lord constantly. What the reformers would call Coram Deo, constantly before the face of God. So they got into the car and they said out loud without closing their eyes while they were driving. Oh, thank you, Lord, for helping us to do what we needed to do to comfort that family in that funeral service. Thank you for the worship of the people. And please guide us on our way here to the gravesite. Every time they would change a lane, they would say, oh, thank you, Lord, for helping us arrive safely in this lane. And then we arrived at the at the at the the, the gravesite. Thank you, Lord, for helping us get here. Thank you, Lord. Isn't God good for letting us get here now, Lord? Please help us to do this service. And we did the service. We got back in the car, and they continued. Thank you, Lord, for helping us in that service. Wasn't that wonderful, Marie? Uh, yes, Wilbur. It was great. And uh, oh, look at the traffic. I hope it doesn't keep. Oh, thank you, Lord, for parting the ways of the traffic. And uh, and it isn't God good in the sun he's given us today, and frankly, uh, to my embarrassment, I thought at that moment, could we talk about something else? (laughs) Could we have a normal conversation? Meaning normal is that you don't have to invoke the Lord's name in everything, that you don't really have to see the Lord's hand in every. And as that thought was forming, I thought, what a sin. They are the example to me of the way we should be living constantly in the presence of God, our thoughts constantly racing to him and returning with thanksgiving to our current condition, seeing his hand in everything that is happening, including our work. When Amos leans into the Israelites and says, the Lord is not pleased with you. I've prayed that he would be merciful to you and spare you the judgment you deserve. But I'm telling you, if you do not change your ways, if you do not repent of the warnings that I'm about to give to you, then he's going to discipline you. He's going to he's going to take you away into exile. He's not going to wipe you out, we learn in chapter nine, because through this line, he has to bring the Messiah to us. But he is going to discipline them back into faithfulness. And, and, and he, he says, what is, the, what is the cure for that problem? That problem of unfaithfulness in worship. That problem of unfaithfulness even in your recreation where you only consider yourself and indulging yourselves and never anybody else. And, and, and in your work, what is the cure for that? Is it doing more work? Is it feeling differently differently? No, he says, it's to think differently. It's to change the way you, it is to change the way you think. And that thinking begins at redemption. It's to go back and think about how the Lord saved you. Chapter 2, verse 10. It is for us to go back to the cross and remember how the Lord saved us. The kind of work he did for us. The worship he rendered to the Father that his delight, his recreation is has been and is always to serve us. It is to look on Christ and his redemptive work in the past, his redeeming work in the present. And it is through that, in response to that perspective, as Trey said so well today, to work in a way that is reflective of the image of God in which we've been created. Now just two, two simple points. That should transform the way we think about our The way we should, that we should transform our work. And these two thoughts in particular. In response to grace. That we think about the mission of our work. Which is the mission of God. And the mission of God is what we've prayed for today. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To think about our work as mission. And that mission is the bringing in of the kingdom of God. And then to think about our work as mercy. In reflection on the kind of work that Jesus has done for us. That in our work of bringing in the kingdom, there is always a merciful component to it. Asking, now I'm not only doing my work, but uh, how may I use it? How may I use it to serve other people? How may I serve people in that work? Just those two simple but profoundly difficult points that can only be carried out by dependence on God's grace. First, thinking about our mission. How in the world have I gotten to work, after all, from these passages? Well, in verses 1 through 3, it comes, verses 1 through 6, really, it comes because uh, Amos warns. He says, listen, these first two visions had to do with the destruction of your crops, had had to do with the destruction of your economy. So uh, what God was threatening was that he was going to destroy not just your se- first crop. You know, you, they grew the first crop. The second crop was a bounty crop and uh, was to, you know, the first crop was for survival. The second crop was for profit. He said, I've distress and, and and also for uh, insurance in case the first crop had, had gone bad. You would at least be able to survive. You might not make a profit, but you'd be able to survive. But the second crop, he said, that the threat was against both crops so that there would be no food in the land. He's going to destroy your economy. Why? Because this work that God had entrusted to them, these these agricultural vocations by which they were not only to find their survival, but by which they were also to supply for the needs of everybody in the land. The owners were taking all the profits for themselves. And when they had a bountiful crop, it didn't result in blessing to those who were helping them reap the crops, but they were instead consuming more profits for themselves. Your work, he said, is not reflective of what I created you to do. When I put you in the garden, I said, I want you, to, I want you to, to tend to this, be good stewards of this garden in reflection of my image. I've created all things in the space of six days and then thereafter, after there's rest, thereafter, I'm entrusting this continued work of unpacking the potential of the creation. I've entrusted that to you. And so you're going to imitate me. And just as I have provided for blessing for you and mercy for you who are vulnerable creatures, I want you to imitate that part of my work as well. And so I've, I've given you the ability in this, this land of milk and honey, this land of abundance, I've given you the ability to uh, make a living, to run an economy. To supply for a society, for your family's needs, but also for the needs of others in reflection of my mercy, the way I set up this world to be. I made you to be givers like me, not takers. It's reflected even in our in our Declaration of Independence, at least in the first version When Thomas Jefferson wrote, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable unalienable rights. And and how do we know that? that? That we have these unalienable rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness? Because he originally said, because this is a sacred and undeniable truth. Now, Benjamin Franklin didn't like that. He said, cut that out and just put self-evident. But even Thomas Jefferson, who, you know, you wouldn't want to be your Sunday school teacher, but at least he knew a Christian worldview. He knew the truths of it. He said, this is sacred and undeniable. Life, living in the pursuit of happiness. God has woven into his creation this principle of giving. You've experienced it from a merciful God who worked and crafted creation and put you and me in the center of it thereafter. Continue his work of unpacking the potential of creation in service to our families and to others. Now, that's reflected. Those Now, of course, Adam and Eve... Uh, Uh, turned to self and they rebelled against the Lord and uh, we are the heirs of their selfishness that that our default then is not to serve like we learned last week it is instead to take it is not to give it is to take and so the Bible has has written into scripture principles for doing business doing our jobs and reflect in a way that is reflective that King Jesus is our ultimate boss. We find lots of instructions for uh, for uh, doing business or for doing any vocation. We find lots of principles in the book of Proverbs, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of James that we're studying in the evening. Some of those principles include things like muzzle, not the ox while he's treading out the grain. So there's responsibility where we're called to be Merciful and and uh, generous, even to the animals who are uh, assisting in this agricultural economy. This this even the animals that are assisting us in making a living. And so what did I, why did they say muzzle not the ox"? Because as the as the ox was was uh, was dragging around his threshing sledge and crushing the grain and separating the wheat and the chaff, uh, then the the, the ox could nourish himself with some of the fruit of his labor. He could eat some of the grain along the way, It'd keep him fueled up. It'd be a reward. It would incentivize him to keep going. But some people had become, like these people in, in the northern part of Israel, had become so selfish that not only were they, they were consuming anything extra for themselves, they were consuming anything extra at the expense of their animals. So they put a muzzle on the ox so that he couldn't eat into their profits. There are other principles, like you need to have accurate scales, Proverbs 11, 16, and 20. You must deal honestly in uh, your commerce. The gleaning laws of the Old Testament don't consume all the profits on yourself, but leave some to benefit uh, others. The year of Jubilee, which provided a way to escape uh, cyclical and and uh, utterly destructive poverty, a way of release, and then the principle that overarches everything from Colossians three seventeen to twenty three: Do all your work as pleasing unto the Lord. Tim Keller said in his uh, book on work, uh, every good endeavor, he said sometimes we we think that a Christian approach to work is just the way we look at work, the way we view our work or the way other people view our work, but instead, for the gospel to 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 transform the way we work, we must put it on like spectacles, like glasses. And see our work, see Christ as we're doing our work. And specifically that we see Christ our king and we are joining him in his mission in our work. Not just our work in the church, not just our work in Sunday school, not just our work with uh, volunteerism. But every vocation, whether you're a book, uh, a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, whatever you are, whether you're a student, whether you're, you're, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, a stay-at-home dad, a teacher, a physician, um, uh, a a, a administrator, whatever your job, whatever your whatever vocation God has given to you, to see in this. I am serving King Jesus in this area of information technology, in this area of science, in this area of metalworking or carpentry. I am planting the flag of Jesus Christ and saying to the world, this belongs to Jesus. And what difference does it make when Jesus is the king of this area as I work in it? It is to view ourselves as participating with him in the carrying out of the kingdom during our very, doing our very ordinary jobs. I read uh, a few years ago in a book that I, uh, by an author I really admire on this topic, Amy Sherman in her book called Kingdom Calling. Amy Sherman's work on work and uh, And bringing Christ into uh, to bear on culture has been her work has been very helpful to me. And she tells a story about a man named Tom Hill who had has a company named Kimray in Oklahoma. They make very high tech gauges, uh, measuring devices in the oil and gas industry. And uh, that business, as we know all too well, can have uh, booms and busts. And uh, before 1985, sometime before 1985, he had uh, his company had gone through a bust. The oil and gas industry had gone down, so he's not selling as many gauges and so forth. And so he had to lay off all of his employees. As he was reading his Bible and getting familiar with the emphases of the Lord Jesus... On a, on a sovereignly gracious God, his emphasis on how one conducts their, their business, he was convicted that he was not practicing those principles. He saw in Deuteronomy and Proverbs and especially James God's concern for those who labor and are at the mercy of their employers. And he said, They are at my mercy. It's because I wasn't a good steward that I had to lay them off, it wasn't just to be blamed on the economy. So sometime before 1985, he started putting aside money into rainy day funds, into reserve funds that were, that were restricted for the good of his employees. In 1985, there was another bust. And where he has before, he would have had to lay off all of his employees. He did not have enough money to, he did not have enough income to, 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 uh, to pay them. So he came up with a novel plan. He went to the mayor of Tulsa and he said, what jobs do you need to be done around here in Tulsa? Are there any open jobs? And then if there are not any open paid jobs... Even if they're below the wages that my people are accustomed to making, that's okay. We want those jobs. And then if you've got any volunteer responsibilities, we want those too. And so he turned his 92 employees out and he said, here are jobs for all of you. Some are paid, some are not paid. You're going to make the same amount that you did working for me. But the Bible not only says that I am responsible for taking care of you in times of of uh, need, you as an image bearer of God are still to be working. So I'm not just going to pay you while you're sitting at home. I want you, you, here's, here's work to be done. And the Bible also says that we're to bless our city. So everybody continued making, having the same paycheck, but they did very different jobs. Some minimum wage jobs, some not paid at all, but they worked until the economy came back. And when the economy came back to the point that he could, do so, he rehired every one of the 92 employees. Do you think that he was popular with his employees? Do you think he had any problem sharing with them the good news of Jesus Christ? Do you want to come to church with me? If your faith does that for you, I want to hear more about Jesus. You bet he did. And it all starts with, start, with, with beginning, understanding, I'm not the king of my business, my vocation. Jesus is the king. And he has principles by which I am to operate. As our as our own uh, homemade scholar here, Michael Rhodes, says the king has an economy. And it's the, the king's rules for economics and business by which we are to live, even if nobody else is. Second thing our text teaches us is <clears throat> by... Example application is that there must be a merciful component to our doing our work. That our that our we we haven't just kept the king's economy. We have not just demonstrated that Jesus is our king. If we turn out an honest day's work and and don't cheat anybody and and uh, and 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 we we work and rest in appropriate rhythms. But if we're truly going to represent the image of God in the way we work, there will be merciful components. There will be manifest ways in which we are serving others. That's where I find Amy Sherman particularly helpful in her book, Kingdom Calling. <clears throat> and she defines four pathways, not alternate pathways, but she's just giving us examples to, 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 uh, to, as catalysts for how we can be creative in the way we use our vocation in a stewardly way for the kingdom of God. And I know you to be a congregation, and when I throw these kinds of these, these ideas out, you take them and run with them. So that's, that's where we're going, these four pathways. She calls the first one, bloom where you're planted. The second one, donate your skills. The third one, launch your own social uh, enterprise. And fourth, participate in your church's focused mission. The first one is bloom where you're planted. All that means is, she says, just look at where you are. What can you do? You may have had the same job for decades, but if you look at it now, with not only the spectacles that I am joining, how am I joining Christ in my work right here, but also how may I show mercy to my own, my fellow employees or to other people? How may I show the mercy of God that he's shown to me? I have a, A friend who's an elder in a previous church I pastored and and, uh, he said he remembers the day many years ago. He was sitting in the congregation and listening to a missions conference speaker. We're going to have a missions conference in February. And you'll notice just by the way is how many of our missionaries are approaching work in this way and creating work for other people. Uh, agricultural jobs and other things and then that is a a, a a platform by which they share the gospel with them and they they get a, a hearing for sharing the gospel in other places but he was sitting in one of these missions conferences and uh, the speaker was preaching on uh, the loaves and fishes the miracle of feeding the 4, five thousand, and the and the preacher said this what is in your hand what is in your hand Well, he meant that kind of metaphorically, but my friend is very literal. And so his hands were in his pockets and he pulled his hand out of his pocket and he had a packet of tomato seeds. He said, well, the preacher, he's a brand new Christian. He said, the preacher said, I'm supposed to do something with what's in my hand. And if I do something with it, the Lord will multiply it. Now I own a restaurant, but I I don't know what I can do with these in the restaurant. So I'll just go down the street. He lived in the inner city. I'm gonna go down the street and I, I know that there's a, a poor lady there who loves tomatoes and she can't afford them in the store. So I'm gonna go plant a tomato garden for her. So he walked down, he took these seeds and he planted them. And that has spun into an almost uncountable number of ministries as a result uh, community gardens teaching kids who didn't have a way out of their poverty how to do agriculture how to sell their plants and so forth and then it went into carpentry and it went into car repair and it's gone into house rebuilding and it started with what's in your hand what job do you have what are the what are the things you're doing right now Hand up to Jesus and say, you're the king, and I want to serve people in a practical, merciful way with what I'm doing here. Show me what to do. Second pathway, and we'll run a little more quickly. uh, Donate your skills. I was, uh, I'm a great fan of Christ community and have been a fan of Christ community health clinics long before I got here because they they sent people to start a Christ community uh, clinic in the city I was before. And so I was meeting with the leadership of Christ community the other day and I said, I said, so what else can second press do to support your work? And I'm accustomed to I was inviting uh, ministries we partner with uh, usually say more money. Never mentioned a dollar. She said, we just need people. Do you have any CMAs? Do you have any RNs? Do you have any LPNs? Do you have any, any doctors, retired doctors, any therapists, any, anybody who can take blood pressure and a temperature? We need people who can volunteer their skills because we have so much opportunity. It's overwhelming the full-time providers We have. Donate. Do you have any of those skills? Uh, Other ministries need the same. I I had a a friend uh, who has an outdoor lighting company. Every Friday, he says, is service day. They don't do anything for profit. On Fridays, they just serve practical needs. If there's, if the people need, uh, you know, people who could never afford outdoor lighting, he takes over uh, stock and he. Blesses the single woman or the widow or the, or the poor family. They could never do that. Or, or he just rakes their leaves. He and his, his, uh, his workers, I've seen him and his, his, his colleagues repair a car in front of my house. They do nothing but share their skills, donate their skills. You have a skill. Can you read? We need a lot of people to help kids read and arise to read donate skills a third area is launch your own social enterprise that sounds monumental but uh, not long ago one of our members sitting toward the back said, I just I mentioned in passing, five loaves and two fishes. Give the Lord your loaves and fishes. And she said, what loaves and fishes do I have? She had a cake-making business. She was operating out of her kitchen. She didn't want to do it anymore. It needed to be expanded. She donated it to neighborhood Christian senators, senate centers and with their commercial kitchen. They've expanded the business. They bring in juveniles who would otherwise, in the juvenile detention center, teach them a skill There are other people who don't have skills. They're teaching them baking, how to run a business, how to market and so forth. Start a social enterprise. Participate in your church's focused mission. You say, I don't have any idea what to do. Okay, we can love you and give you a wonderful plan for your life. We can can help you find what you're supposed to do. So one of our members came the other day and he said, I don't know. What can I have been so moved by the book of Amos the, and the, the need to minister to the poor? I have some apartment buildings. I don't know what you could do with them. I mean, there are people in there and those people are poor and they are some are the working poor. Some are some have been poor for generations. And what I'm my family wants to do. We care about our tenants. We don't want them to stay in this condition even if it means they, they get a, a, a leg up and they move out of our apartments. We want this. We love them. We want life to go well with them. We don't know. What, can, what we're doing is opening the door and saying, would you bring services? Would you bring ministries that would help them? Do you know that they line up almost perfectly with our parishes? Our parishes could adopt one or two of these apartment buildings and love those people. But he... That's, that's what he brought. You may not have something that big. It may be smaller, like uh, uh, the ability to, to help somebody with financial planning. That One of my friends uh, had that gift of, of, of helping with financial planning. He has, he has now given it to the Lord, and through connections around the city, he is going to raise up a cooperation with banks that provide micro loans where people won't have to go to payday loans anymore. And he can show them how to get out of their cyclical debt. You have something. You have something that the Lord has given you. And he wants to use it. And to make it, make it significant in his kingdom. And make it into something that serves mercifully the needs of those around you. This is a story you will not believe unless I tell you who told it. It's not George telling you, it's Sinclair Ferguson, one of my professors. uh, And uh, Sinclair Ferguson is a very famous theologian, he has uh, credibility worldwide. This is his testimony. He says he knew a man who came to Christ in a very, very interesting way, he was a businessman. And this man uh, was an executive, and he was over uh, a, a large group, uh, and he was going there to, to tour the facility, this particular facility he had not visited before. So he met with the manager, and the manager took him on a tour. He said, well, I see what people are doing. I want to see what the place, how the place is laid out. And in those old days, there were things called typing pools. Uh, They weren't swimming around. They were just uh, typists all gathered in one place. They were mechanical typewriters where you hit a button and it struck a key and it hit a ribbon and it put a a mark on the paper. And uh, so you had to hit those things like that, which made them loud. So they gathered them all in one place, not only because they were loud, but it was also efficient. These uh, people who needed to, to send out memos that were typed would drop them off at the typing pool. And all those people did all day long was just type. So the manager was touring the executive along. He went along a catwalk and he's going over this type, this typing pool, just moving from one place to the next. And uh, they were were walking along and the executive said, stop, wait a minute. Do you hear that? And the manager said, I I do hear that, sir. I'm sorry. It's so loud. We'll move on here and it'll be much more. No, 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 no. He said, do you hear that one typewriter? No, sir. There's a bunch of typewriters down there. No, no, no. Listen. There's one typist, one typewriter, one typist who is who is different from all the rest. There's a there's a there's a rhythmic quality to that typing. There's there's a there's a kind of there's a kind of joy in that typing. Who is who, who is doing that? It's that it's that person right there. What's that person's story? The manager was a Christian. He knew his, wife, his boss, the executive, was not a Christian. He knew the man he was pointing to, whose uh, who's typing he was admiring, and he said, well, that man is a friend of mine. He is, he's a Christian. And I, I didn't, I wouldn't think that I would, wouldn't have thought that Christianity is his faith would have an impact on his typing. But if if you've heard something, uh, that might be the situation because He does, you know, a Christian is somebody who who knows that they're going to go to heaven, that their sins have been forgiven. And a Christian is one who tries to live and work gratefully for that redemption. Maybe that had an impact on his typing. Do you know that that executive came to Christ do you know that that executive changed the way he approached business and the, the way he shaped the culture of his business? And it all started with someone who was a typist and probably wasn't thinking that day, I'm going to type in such a rhythm, rat tat 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 that I'm going to lead somebody to Christ. No, they are, but somehow they're looking at King Jesus and it makes its way out of them in the way they work. And that work had the ultimate merciful impact on someone who did not know Christ in a personal way and bore fruit in other people's lives as well. Let's submit our work to him and pray that he uses it in a way that brings a name to himself. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word, for these prophets who knows their way into every area of our lives, even our work. But not to, not to drive us to hopeless guilt, but to include us in the joy of participating with Jesus Christ in his redeeming work in this city and in the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.